All right, everyone. I will invite you to grab your hot or cold beverage, whichever you opted for this morning at our lovely selection at the coffee tables, and uh, come take your seats as we continue our series that we've been going through in Isaiah. My name is Mike. I am the, hello, I am the youth pastor here at Jericho Ridge, as well as part of the teaching team. Uh, I had a a little bit of a uh, scheduling conflict this morning, because every fifth and sixth week we have Source, which is the Bible study for grades 7, 8, and 9, which are just heading out the door right now. Uh, And so our elder there, Tyler, was very gracious enough to take over for me this morning, and I feel a little bad about it because, uh, well, we've been going through a bunch of questions that they had in September, so we've been talking about things like gender equality and Bible translations and doubts and faith and heaven, and and now we've been going through the book of Ruth, which has been very interesting for me because I don't think I, well, I know I've never done a Bible study or like any study really in Ruth, so I've learned a lot. And they're on Ruth, Ruth chapter 3 right now. And so I feel a little bad for Tyler because this is the chapter where Naomi tells Ruth to go bathe and get dressed really nice, put on some perfume, go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be working. Once he's done his work and he has some food and some drink and he lies down to go sleep to sneak in there and uncover his feet and lie at them to seduce him, if you will. So, big thank you to Tyler for uh, taking that for me. It, I, I swear it was chance. I didn't purposely do that. So, uh, if you're a parent of youth or you're just interested in what we're talking about at youth, uh, we do have a blog that I put up, a summary of most of the talks up there for uh, Wired, which is our student ministries is what we call it. We're really here to equip you parents as the primary spiritual caregivers of your children. We only see them once, twice a week. You see them every single day, whether you like it or not, most of the time. Uh, So you can go on there. You can see uh, summaries of the talks, some of the discussion questions. So you continue that conversation with your kids there. And it's up on the screen there, jrccwire.blogspot.ca. I put the majority of them up there. Sometimes I just forget, and i like, well... We've already done two talks, so I guess I won't post that one up there. But you can find most of them up there. But this morning, we are concluding our series in Isaiah on and off through through the past 11 weeks. We've been going through this book, looking at the prophet that was in the midst of all the action. And I don't know about you, but when we're concluding something, I get really excited. Like when I finish a book, I'm just like, yes, I feel like I've accomplished something. And I'm excited for something new. And that's how I feel about Isaiah today. Isaiah has been great. We're finishing it and we're going to start something new next weekend. But first, we've got this last section we're going to look at. This prophet spoke on behalf of God leading up to and after the exile of Israel at the hands of the Babylonians. And now in the final few chapters, Isaiah begins to look ahead at the hope of the future. This one really matches with the little line we've got under there, a new day dawning, because that's the day that Isaiah begins to look forward to. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 62, and the first 
five verses of that chapter, if you'd like to turn there with me, it will also be on the screen in the New Living Translation. Because I love Zion, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory and you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see, a splendid crown in the hand of the Lord. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem. Just as a young man commits himself to his bride, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Isaiah and this melds together preaching and prayer, which can make it quite confusing as to who is speaking or who is doing the action. Is it God whose heart is yearning for Jerusalem or Isaiah's? Is it Isaiah who's praying unceasingly for Zion or God? The relationship between God and his messenger is so tight that their will becomes one, and so Isaiah is able to weave together prayer and preaching for Jerusalem. And the preaching and prayer in this passage is written in the form of poetry, which is becoming a genre I'm getting quite capable of preaching on, since the last three of my four texts have been poems. From Mary's song in Advent, Isaiah 6 was a mixture of prayer and narrative, and now we have this passage, which is a poem. So with that in mind, let's have some good old-fashioned fun and review our poetry terms, because I know none of you remember them from when I talked about them back in December, because fair enough, if I hadn't preached them, I wouldn't remember them either. So we'll do a little bit of review. Poetry is designed to work on our emotions, not so much on our mind. And so they use specific poetic devices in order to show these um, emotions. One is metaphor, which I'm sure many of you are um, aware of or know about. One, it's a uh, comparison of one thing to another without using like or as. So it's comparing something, but just because it's comparing doesn't mean that thing is literally that thing. So for example, the monkey on your back is not literally a monkey on your back, but a problem that is so annoying and burdensome that it's like you're having a monkey on your back. Uh, or I presume I've never actually had a literal monkey on my back, but I'm sure that's where the phrase comes from. The other one that plays heavily into our passage is synonymous parallelism, which is your big word for the day. It's the repetition of one idea in successive lines. So two lines that basically say the same thing but with different words. So Isaiah must have really worn out his thesaurus on this poem because he uses it four times in five verses. And it forces you to dwell on the concept twice as long than you usually would by reading that idea twice in two different ways, really spending time on that idea. So that concludes our really quick poetry lesson. We all survived, and now we can continue with our passage I want to start by looking deeper at verse 1. Because I love Zion, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. 
I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. So here it seems like it's Isaiah who's speaking about his own love for Jerusalem, but we can easily equate that with God's own heart for Jerusalem as well. His love is so great for the city that he tells about his love twice. That's your first synonymous parallelism. He tells it twice to really make you think on that thought of how much God, how much Isaiah loves Jerusalem. And then our last two lines also are a synonymous parallelism. Righteousness shines like the dawn and salvation blazes like a burning torch. So in the first parallelism, we have Zion and Jerusalem being equated together. And uh, many people think that Zion refers more to the land around Jerusalem because you have Mount Zion that's right there and Jerusalem is the city itself, which is more of a common uh, thought for today. But likely during this time, it was more um, just two different words for the same city. And then you have the parallelism of righteousness and salvation being linked together. And so Isaiah is sitting and looking over the city and he's saying he's not going to stop praying for it. If Isaiah was writing this poem perhaps standing on Mount Zion and overlooking Jerusalem, he probably would have seen something like this image here. The city was in ruins. Babylon had come and destroyed it. This is uh, a city in Syria recently. I think it's Antioch. And that's what Jerusalem would have been like. And he's writing this poem, overlooking this rubble, this chaos, that is left of God's chosen city, but he has hope. His hope is rooted in the faithfulness of God. God has said that his people will return to the land and that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And despite the hopelessness that surrounds them, Isaiah has this hope that his promise will be fulfilled. They've been living in Babylon now for many years. Their city lays in ruins, inhabited by those who cheered over their destruction. All this can cause him to despair, but Isaiah trusts that God is faithful to his promises and he prays unceasingly for that promise to be filled until it is filled. When you are filled with God's hope and love for someone, you can't help but pray and pray and pray for them until they see that hope and that love of God themselves. And then we go to our second parallelism, which is two metaphors, salvation and righteousness being linked together as it often is throughout Scripture. And John Oswalt, I think that's the name. Yes, give proper credit. In his commentary says that the paralleling of righteousness and salvation has two reasons. First, it reminds the reader that Israel's righteousness is only possible because of God's saving activity. It is not something Israel can produce on her own. We cannot produce our own righteousness. It's something that is given to us by the grace of God. When we try to produce our own righteousness, it misses the mark of the intention of it. It's called self-righteousness, which we all know the connotations that surround that. 
we look at righteousness as if it's something that we've generated ourselves. It's something that we've done ourselves. We can claim ourselves as righteous and therefore we look at others and judge them and say that they're not as good as us. But righteousness given by God, the proper kind of righteousness, leads to humility. We recognize that we could never be righteous on our own and we needed God's help, God's intervention. And so we look at others and we desire them to have that same declaration over their lives. We see that they desperately need that declaration of God's love and to be declared righteous by him as well. The second reason to link these two together of righteousness and salvation is that the combination, the, it shows the only goal of God's saving activity is unmistakably righteous living. God saves us so that we can live righteously, so that we can live rightly, living to the intention that God created us with, living in right relationship with God, living in right relationship with each other, and living in right relationship with creation. Now in these two lines of righteousness and salvation, there are two metaphors. Righteousness shines like the dawn, and salvation blazes like a burning torch. Both are showing that their righteousness and their salvation is very apparent. Since it's so nice outside, and I know I'm starting to feel like the little camping push. Caitlin's been feeling the camping push since February. (laughs) She loves camping. Let's use some camping uh, metaphors to explain this metaphor. The dawn is very apparent when it comes, especially when you're camping in a tent, at least it is for me, the sun comes up and comes streaming through your very thin tent walls and wakes me up. And everything inside of it becomes very apparent. It illuminates the mess of sleeping bags and your exploded bag with clothing coming all out of it in the corner because you were fumbling around in the dark to find stuff. It's the same with a burning torch. When it is dark and there's a torch lit, you can see it off in the distance and it kind of calls you towards it at least it does to me maybe i have a problem being attracted to flames but each one has a little more specific meaning as well when the sun comes up and the dawn happens it banishes all darkness as much as i like camping i'm always a little uneasy the first night sleeping in a tent every sound i hear happening outside i think is a bear or a coyote or a cougar so i don't sleep well the first night But after I survive the first night, (laughs) then I feel fine. Caitlin doesn't know that, so I'll never hear the end of it now that I said that. But once the dawn comes up that first morning, you are sure that there's not any creatures that are hiding in those woods that I was so convinced were there the night before. The righteousness that God gives to Jerusalem will shine a light on the darkness, on the evil, and on the sin of all those around God's will will be very apparent. Salvation blazes like a burning torch. These torches were sticks that had rags that were dipped in oil and wrapped around it and set on fire. They were used to guide and mark destinations. Jerusalem's salvation will guide people to it and will mark Jerusalem as the destination. Continuing with the camping Metaphor, when you're at summer camp and you see 
a torch or a bunch of torches and a, or a bonfire somewhere, you know that there's something happening over there and that's where you need to be. And like I said before, when I see a torch blazing in the middle of the night, I just have this urge to go and see what's happening. So it will be with Jerusalem on that day when God declares it righteous. Its salvation draws all people to it. On to verse 2 and 3. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see a splendid crown in the hand of God. John Calvin pointed out that usually kings are blinded by their own glory. They overlook their kingdom, all that they've accomplished, all that they have done, and glorify themselves, often setting themselves up as gods, as the Roman emperors usually did. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon overlooks his kingdom, sees all that he's accomplished, and pride takes over. But Isaiah is saying that there's going to come a time when they will have to acknowledge Zion's superiority. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That includes every king, every president, every prime minister, every dictator, every world leader. They will be blinded by the glory of God and confess him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And then the wedding metaphor starts taking over the rest of the section. And it begins here. The Lord will give them a new name by his own mouth. Just like a bride, at least traditionally, receives a new name at her wedding. Caitlin was very happy when we got married. Not just because she was marrying me. (laughs) But also... Because her last name went from Middlestat to Ryder. Good luck spelling Middlestat, everyone. Went from 12 letters to 5, which is fair enough. I would be excited about that too. This new name is given by the Lord's own mouth. The mouth that spoke the universe into creation. And it speaks a new name over them which it goes into a little deeper in the next passage. That's a little teaser for what's coming a little bit later. But first we have this line that says, the Lord will hold him in his hand like a precious crown for all to see. A crown is worn to show a person's power, legitimacy, victory, triumph, honor, and glory. And this is what a redeemed Israel, a redeemed Jerusalem is to God, something precious. Jan Kuhl says in her commentary, the restored Zion is the shining example of God's faithfulness to his people and the fulfillment of his promise and of his kingship in the course of world history. A restored Jerusalem reveals God's reign over all the earth. His kingdom on earth completely. But his crown is not upon his head like a crown usually is worn, but is in his hand. It's safe and secure in the mighty hand of the Lord. He's protecting it. In his hand, he can admire his possession. On his head, you can't fully admire all the intricacies 
and the beauty of the crown, but in his hand he can look at it and delight in it. As God delights in his redeemed people. In his hand, he holds it out for everyone to see this crown, this redemption of people, and invites everyone into it to take part in that redemption, to take part in God's delight. He offers the redemption he's giving to Jerusalem to all who come to him. And then we go to verse 4, where the wedding metaphor really starts kicking in. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. The name is given by the powerful and creative word of God, changing Israel's identity and changing Israel's destiny. Jerusalem is seen as a forsaken city, a desolate land, Forsaken because its people have been taken out, captured by the Babylonians. Forsaken because the nations surrounded it, hated it. Desolate because it's been laid flat to the ground as the Babylonians come in, destroy their city, destroy their temple. Which in that world meant that Babylon's gods had defeated Israel's god. Isaiah is very aware of the present reality of Jerusalem. But he's also confident in the hope of his God. Instead of the forsaken city, it will be the city of God's delight. Delight is the same word used in Hebrew that is used to describe a man's feelings for a particular woman. You love a person and you absolutely delight in their presence. So does God delight in the presence of his redeemed people. Instead of the land being desolate, it will be the bride. The image is God marrying his people, marrying his creation. And it points to our final hope at the end of history when God comes and weds his church. We see in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The man leaves his home and takes up a new dwelling with his bride. And then the Apostle John uses this image in Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I hear a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. God takes up his dwelling place upon earth with his people. This is the redeemed city that Isaiah talks about. The city he prays unceasingly for. The city whose righteousness shines like a new dawn and whose salvation blazes like a burning torch. The city that blinds world leaders with its glory. The city that is a precious 
crown in the hand of God that he delights in and that signals his final triumph, his final victory, the final establishment of his kingdom on earth. This is the same hope that we have today, the same thing we pray for when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. In this passage as well, God is showing Israel that they have a mixed up identity. They struggle with the fact that they're called a chosen people of God, but now they're in exile. They begin identifying themselves with the labels that the surrounding nations are giving them, forsaken city, desolate land. They have constantly failed God, as we've seen through this series. They rebelled against God and didn't recognize his care for them. They live as if he didn't exist. They reject his help and yet continue their religious rituals. Greed and self-interest have prevailed over everything else. King Ahaz has refused to ask God for a sign because he decided to trust in hired mercenaries instead of God. They put God on trial, saying that he is the one who's been unfaithful to the covenant. They treated others poorly. They failed to be a light to the nations, bringing the people to God. They sacrificed their children to idols. They pursued alliances with nations God told them not to. They dishonored and killed prophets. They treated the poor and crippled awfully. God expected justice from them but found oppression. He expected righteousness but found violence. And yet despite all of this, God loves them deeply. Like a groom loves his bride. He sees the potential in them. Like he sees the potential in all of us. He sees the things that lie buried beneath the layers of sin and shame. But Israel is looking at what the nations are saying about them and finding their identity from that rather than from God. And the thing we miss in our highly individualized and Western culture is that Israel is always talked about as a nation, as a community. The righteousness in verse 1 that shines like a new dawn is as a nation. Their salvation that blazes like a burning torch is as a nation. Their new name that they're given is as a nation. Our culture is why we view ourselves as Christian instead of Christians. We view the church as a building instead of a people. Our righteousness is as a community. Our salvation is as a community. And our new name is as a community. We tie in our self-esteem with this individualism and not personhood. The Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier says that if we try to cast off all our social apparel, we should tend to become individuals and not persons. The notion that the person is bound up with human community, a spiritual solidarity, a common patrimony, and therefore to a certain conventional form of expression which partakes the nature of personage. Our sense of self is a byproduct of our web of relationships. At Fusion in March, which is our youth event we do at the beginning of the month with Mountain View Alliance and um, Riverside Chapel, we, uh, or I, had a, a mirror that I put on the side and I invited the youth to come up during worship and write on that mirror 
the things that the negative things they think about themselves as they look in that mirror, or the things that they perceive um, other people think about them. And the things that are written on that mirror, though they might believe are things they generate about themselves, isn't something that they generate about themselves, but that they pick up from people and culture around them. See, a girl comes up and writes on that mirror that she's fat because the billboards and the television and the movies and the magazine covers say you don't look like the person that we're showing on this. There's something wrong with your weight. The boy who comes up to the mirror and writes that he's just an annoying kid and has no friends is because his fellow fellow students at school have rejected him because those students also are insecure about their identity and need someone to put down to be able to feel superior to someone else at least. At times, I myself have to fight the voice in my head that says I'm useless because the family who meant well but communicated to me subtly that making money was the way to be useful. And they told me when I said I wanted to go into ministry, the first thing was, you know, pastors don't make very much money. And now I work half-time, go to school, while my wife is the main moneymaker that supports me being able to do all of this. And so the voice pops up once in a while. You're useless. You can't even support yourself financially since that's what was ingrained as I grew up. These thoughts can be crippling and detrimental to our sense of self. We find ourselves when we give it away to others. See, God knows who we really are. He takes that mirror and all those things that we put on it that we think about ourselves because that's what society and what people are telling us and he erases it. And he says that we are his masterpiece, his beloved child, his friend, and we were created for a purpose. We can't just hear those things, but we need to experience that. And we experience that, we experience God's love for us through his church. If I didn't have my youth group who showed me that I was useful because they showed me deep love, and a useless person doesn't get love, I would never, well, I, know, I don't know what would happen. I would have never taken the step of pursuing going into ministry that I wanted so deeply if I didn't have a mentor that told me, I think you're ready to take this step. Paul recognizes this as he spouts off a bunch of one another statements of how the church is to act towards each other, accept one another, encourage one another, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another, love one another. You experience these things in the church, or at least you should. And when you experience these things, you are experiencing your true identity, the identity that God has for you. And that is my self-identity rant. But we're going to finish our passage off now with verse 5. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Speaks to an everlasting time spent in the land. The land was central to the covenant 
that God had with Israel. You follow the covenant, you get the land. You break the covenant, you get kicked out of the land. They were exiled to Babylon because of their sin. And Jeremiah told them, settle down, pray for the city, you're going to be here for a while. But God redeems them. When God redeems them, he will settle them into the land for the long run. They commit themselves to each other like a young man commits himself to his bride. And there may be a detachment between the notion of a long run and marriage with our broken marriages that are all too prevalent in our culture. But at that moment, at that altar, when a young man and a young woman or a man and a woman look at each other and say, till death do us part, they mean it in that moment. And God is faithful. He follows through on his promises. The commitment to keep them in the land will stand. The new Jerusalem comes down and all God's people will dwell in it, commit themselves to it forever. And God keeps them in his presence forever. No more exile, no more tears, no more death, no more pain, no more celebration or uh, separation. Lots of celebration. And God rejoices over his people, rejoices over his bride forever and ever. So what do we take from this passage? If you look around at the people around you, the faces that you see, do you think that person is my brother? That person is my sister. Being righteous means being in right relationship with each other. Are you in right relationship with the people around you? Being saved means being reconciled to God and to one another. Are you reconciled to one another? Your salvation is tied with this community. Your first takeaway is to live in community. Living community is messy and it's tough but it's also life-giving. We are called to live in community together as the church. Bear one another's burdens, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. Maybe this is your first time at Jericho Ridge, but you're thinking, that's the kind of community I want to be a part of. One that loves one another, one that bears one another's burdens, one that forgives one another and encourages one another. You're welcome here. One of our core values is authentic community, which means it's okay not to pretend. Not to pretend that we have everything all together. Because I'll let you in on a secret, none of us have everything all together. In fact, I'll say most of us has very little together. (laughs) And that's okay. If the church is in the place where you can take off those masks of being all right, then where can you? If this is your first time at Jericho Ridge, you can go to the Welcome Center at the end here and see areas where you can plug in small groups, events that are happening. Maybe go on the men's retreat. Maybe come to the clothing swap that's happening on Thursday. Introduce yourself to someone here. We're all friendly people. We don't bite, but maybe watch out for some two-year-olds. Introduce yourself to me. I also don't bite. You're welcome here. Live in community. The second is pray 
unceasingly. Your brothers and sisters who are hurting, pray for them until they are relieved of pain. Your neighbors who don't know God, pray for them until they know God. The world that is full of darkness and evil and hate, pray for it until God returns, until God makes all things new, until God wipes every tear from our eyes and abolishes death and pain and illness forever. Pray unceasingly. And you can bring these things to our prayer team that will be at the side at the end here. Ali and Katie and Brad will be on the sides. Come pray with them. Pray unceasingly. Thirdly and finally, give yourself to others. Don't give your sense of self to the media or to just anyone in your schools or workplaces. Give your sense of self to your brothers and sisters in the church. Give your sense of self to godly people who see you like Jesus sees you. The people who can see the potential in you underneath those layers of sin and shame and can speak that potential out in your life. Do the same to others around you. Go to your brothers and sisters and encourage them in what you are seeing God doing in their lives. Tell them that they are loved. Show them that they are loved. Give your sense of self to others, to those in the church.